This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello, I'm Lauren Martin from UNSW's Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Today, we're talking about the concept of planned relocation in the context of hazards, disasters, and climate change. People's lives, and often their livelihoods, are entwined with their environment, and so they can be profoundly affected by hazards, disasters, and the impacts of climate change. Increasingly around the world, the impacts are such that people move permanently out of harm's way. Sometimes it's a group of households. Sometimes whole communities will move together to a new area with less risk. This kind of organized move is often called a planned relocation. Now, planned relocation is gaining traction as a tool for disaster risk reduction and as an adaptation to climate change. But how much do we know about planned relocation cases? I'm speaking today with Erica Bauer and Sanjula Wiersinga. Their new research has mapped planned relocations around the world, including a global data set of more than 300 planned relocation cases. Their recently launched report is called Leaving Place, Restoring Home, and it was commissioned by the Caldor Center and the Platform on Disaster Displacement. Welcome to the researchers, Erica Bauer, and Hello. Sen- Hi. And Sanjula Wirasinga. Hi, Lauren. Thanks. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Sanjula, maybe you can start us off by explaining just what planned relocation means. What, what does it look like? Sure. And thanks, Lauren. Well, the term planned relocation became prominent when it was included alongside displacement and migration in the 2010 Cancun Adaptation Framework. But that framework didn't explain what planned relocation means. And in fact, there isn't a common or universally accepted definition. Even though planned relocation has been described in important instruments, such as the Nansen Initiative's Protection Agenda, or national policies such as the one in Fiji, Still, there are different views on some of its key elements. I'll just add that for the purposes of this research, we identified planned relocation cases as those that had six key elements. They were planned, they involved the permanent movement of people that were in a group or a community from an identified origin to an identified destination site and were initiated predominantly in association with a hazard, including hydrometeorological hazards, like a flood or a storm, a geophysical hazard, such as a volcano, or an environmental hazard. And I'll also add that some development or climate adaptation actors refer to this very same form of movement by other names, such as resettlement or managed retreat. So this research looks at planned relocation in the context of hazards, disasters, and climate change. As you explained, these can be floods or droughts, 
that kind of thing, earthquakes maybe. So tell me a little bit more about what you found. In what context do planned relocations usually take place? Sure. So the cases that we identified were initiated most often in the context of floods, but other hazards also featured, such as tsunamis, storms, erosion, earthquakes, landslides, and sea level rise. Many cases took place because of multiple hazards. So there was a combination of floods and erosion, for example. In these cases, it was also a combination of harms and risks that drove the decision to relocate. So it's important really to understand that environmental factors are certainly a key driver of decisions to relocate, but they can also be influenced by other reasons that may be political, social or economic. And we often see that planned relocations are described in, in one of two traditional ways. Either it's before an event in anticipation of future risks or after an event in response to realized harms. But in reality, we found that on the ground, it's a bit more complicated. Cases fall somewhere along a continuum between those two extremes of proactive and reactive. Often it was both simultaneously. People have experienced a harm, whether it's displacement or loss of livelihoods or property damage, but they're also looking ahead and anticipating the risks of other hazards in the future. Another distinction that might be particularly important for policy and practice is whether planned relocation is initiated before or after displacement and what options people who are displaced have um, in the interim. So have they returned home and are they able to find shelter or do they need to stay in displacement sites pending relocation? Right, so the when is a big factor and it can be at any point in that continuum. Now, Erica, let's move to the how and the where. How do planned relocations unfold? From where do people go and to where? So this study identified four spatial patterns of planned relocation. First, there is the most stereotypical case in our collective imagination, which is where a community moves from one single origin to one single destination. But there are also three other spatial patterns. Some cases involved many origins to one destination site, while other cases involved one origin that was split to many different destinations. And then there are the most complicated cases that involved many origins moving to many destination sites with no measures to ensure community continuity in the interim. Understanding the differences between these spatial patterns is important, especially for policymakers and practitioners. For example, planned relocation cases with multiple origin sites may require careful planning and thought about how to integrate multiple groups into one common site and how to create inclusive participation mechanisms for people across multiple places of origin. In contrast, cases with multiple destinations may require careful consideration of what happens when a community disintegrates. So there's a lot of ways this can play out. Um, tell us in your work, is there a typical planned relocation? And, you know, 
who and how many people would be physically relocated in a planned relocation? Hmm. Good question. Well, in addition to the global mapping, we also looked in greater depth at 34 cases that had single origins and single destination sites. And only about half of those cases involved indigenous communities, which we thought was fascinating. But this closer look showed us that indeed there is no typical planned relocation case. Some cases involved diverse populations and the number of households ranged dramatically from just four in Munisavi Savi village in Fiji to over a thousand in Gramalote, Colombia. And about half of the cases analyzed involved less than 250 households and others were in fact even smaller. So it is interesting to note that these cases just had one origin and one destination site with relatively small numbers of people. And when we compare that to cases with multiple origins and multiple destinations, many of those actually appear to be far greater and orders of magnitude greater um, involving even hundreds of thousands of people. So generally, who initiates the move? Is it always the government? And we found that cases can be initiated from within the community, such as by village elders or a village collective, but it can also be initiated by national or subnational government actors. Interestingly, international and domestic non-governmental organisations also initiated some cases. In many cases, it was often a combination of actors that were involved in the decision-making process. And then also in terms of implementation, we found that this, a similar combination of actors played a role. So governments, donors, intergovernmental and non-governmental actors, as well as the community. So the reality of actors both initiating and or supporting relocation seems quite diverse. So to answer your question, Laura, no, it isn't always government actors that initiate relocation. Great, but once that decision is made, Let's get into how far people move and how long the process takes. Erica, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So most of the cases analyzed in depth involved relatively short distances with many cases spanning less than two kilometers from the origin to the destination. Nearly all of the cases took place in rural areas, but two of the cases in Asia involved a rural origin to an urban destination, which we thought was fascinating. On the timing point, the time between an initiation decision and completion of the physical move ranged dramatically from just one to two years to many decades. And about one quarter of the cases that we researched are ongoing even today. Wow. And I imagine that relocating an entire hometown brings about a range of complications and challenges. What are some of the most common challenges you found in the cases you studied of planned relocation? Yes, yes, there were many challenges, Lauren. So in the literature we re reviewed, um, people had faced most of their challenges following the relocation to their new place. So in some of these cases, there was ongoing hazard exposure at their destination site. So for example, they continued to face flood risk. 
in others, the opportunity for all of the people in the community to participate in the decision making process was quite limited and there were gender or class dynamics to that challenge. Other common challenges related to the availability um, and the quality of housing infrastructure and other services at the destination site. We also saw there were concerns and challenges related to livelihoods and changes in livelihoods, cultural loss and intergenerational differences between, for example, the elderly in a community or the youth about whether or not they wanted to relocate. In some of the cases, people who had relocated to their destination site decided to abandon their new homes and return to their origins or to go to new areas. And we really, I mean, these challenges show that we really need to better understand some of the issues related to outcomes. We need to understand the repercussions for people before we can really highlight what might or might not be a quote unquote effective practice for planned relocation. Excellent. And given all that, what do you hope the impact of this report will be? Who do you hope will read it? And why? Yeah, as a, I guess as a first point, we see this study as, uh, as providing a contribution in terms of a data set. What we offer is 300 planned relocation cases as a, as a first foundation for further research, analysis and comparison. And what we also do is introduce a typology of spatial patterns and a methodology for identifying characteristics of cases that have been undertaken globally. And we're also hoping that the preliminary insights and implications we've identified are helpful for policy and practice. And to the other part of your question, Lauren, we hope that this report will be read by other researchers who are working on this issue and also by practitioners and policymakers across relevant fields. And of course, we have to thank the Platform on Disaster Displacement and the Calder Center for co-commissioning this study, as well as a range of experts who have provided advice and feedback throughout this process. Great. And what's next with this research? I assume you're not finished with this issue yet. Sandhua? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, this, um, this study is just a first of a series of collaborative research efforts that we've embarked on to build evidence on, the, on this topic. And a number of related studies are also going to be published very soon. And this includes two snapshots on planned relocation, one on Asia and another on the Pacific, as well as a case study compilation that looks at unexplored spatial patterns of planned relocation so not the stereotypical case that Erica mentioned earlier. These three pieces were commissioned by GIZ. And then to overcome the English language bias, IOM will soon publish a complementary study that uses our methodology and identifies cases that have been discussed in French, Spanish and Portuguese literature. Erica and I are also planning to prepare a short report for the Caldor Centre that looks at characteristics of cases that have been associated with coastal geographies and sea level rise. And finally, planned relocation was also a key topic in a recent virtual workshop series on displacement in the context of climate change in Africa. It'll feature in an upcoming research agenda 
as part of that process. So throughout all of these collaborative efforts that Sanjula has mentioned, the international community is on a path to gaining better knowledge and evidence on what the phenomenon of plant relocation actually looks like in different regions and across the globe. And we, we need to continue and frankly to scale up our efforts to research and to monitor planned relocation so we can guide policy and practice. Ultimately, we, we need to ensure that planned relocation minimizes risks and harms so we can better protect the rights, the security and the dignity of affected people. Erica Bauer and Sanjula Weersinger, thank you both so much. This is really important baseline research and I dare say it might feature in the Caldor Center's annual conference this year. You can explore it all at our website, caldorcenter.unsw.edu.au, as well as on the PDD website, that's disasterdisplacement.org and on the IOM Environmental Migration Portal, where uh, you'll find access to the database of the plant relocations in their study. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.